Today on Blue 58, the Packers have some noteworthy big bodies on the defensive line and some noteworthy names at edge rusher, but both of those position groups have been disappointing at times. So what should we expect from these guys in the coming football season? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. We're talking defensive line, we're talking edge rushers, and we are also diving into Chapter 8 Chapter 9, excuse me, of Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, the subject of which is the power sweep. And as you can imagine, we have a few things to say about that, but let's talk about some big guys first. We talked about the offensive line last time around, and we'll talk about the defensive line first today. And very similar, I think, to the offensive line, there is a part of this that is kind of symbiotic. All of these guys working together makes all of them better or unfortunately, all of them worse. And the interplay between the defensive line and the Packers edge rushers last year, I think, really showed how that can play out. Just as an example, this is not defensive line specific, but at edge rusher um, last year, or 2019, I should I should say when I'm talking about last year, um, Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith both had great years and they played off of each other. Preston Smith was very frequently the table setter for Zedarius Smith. He would um, just make things easier for his his running mate. And Smith, beating guys on his own, uh, just had that much less to deal with when Preston Smith was soaking up uh, other blockers. In 2020, that wasn't always the case because Preston Smith had a down year. And though in the box score numbers, Zedarius still had a very good year, his overall pressure numbers were down. And that's something we'll talk about when we get to the edge rusher section. This is something that's kind of bothered me about the Packers for a couple of years now. They've needed help on the defensive line for Kenny Clark, and getting help for Kenny Clark, and I guess in turn guys like Zadarius Smith, is going to help everybody. But the Packers really haven't put many resources toward their defensive line. We've harped on it for a while now. They did make an addition this year in TJ Slayton, but overall it's basically the same group we've seen for the past couple of years. So what do we expect from this guy? Well, we've got to start with Kenny Clark. Going by the same scale of high, moderate, and low expectations, Kenny Clark is obviously going to have pretty high expectations. He's one of the most well-regarded defensive linemen in the league. He made the Pro Bowl in 2019, then was hurt for a good while last year. I don't know if he ever really got back to full strength after sustaining a fairly early season injury. What does a good season for him look like? What does meeting expectations look like for Kenny Clark this year? I think for him, you're looking for a guy who's playing at a high level all season long, and playing healthy all season long. Now, health you can only control to a certain extent, and I I don't know how much I buy about the this guy's injury prone, this guy's not sort of discussion. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. If how could you control that at after a certain point? Sure, you got to stay in good shape and take care of your body, but you know ACLs are going to tear. Guys are going to get their feet stuck in turf. You know, people are going to roll up on your knee. That stuff is just going to happen. Kenny Clark needs to do everything he can to stay healthy this year. Not saying he hasn't in the past, but it's got to be a wire-to-wire healthy season for him to get the absolute most out of him that we can. And on top of that, he needs to perform at a consistent level all year long. It's been almost a running joke for a few years now that he gets all of his sacks late in the season, and that's good when you're peaking late and trying to get the playoffs and things like that. But I don't just want late-season sack Kenny Clark. I want scary force all-season Kenny Clark, and he is very capable of doing that. I would like to see it. 17 games wire-to-wire, let's see it. 
Moving on to the next guy that may be surprised, maybe not, depending on you know what your read on the defensive line is. But I want to talk about Kingsley Kiki before I get to anybody else. I think he's got to be facing pretty high expectations this year. Not quite the same as Kenny Clark. The Packers aren't expecting a Pro Bowl season out of him. But the Packers have been betting on improvements from him for two years now. That was a big part of why they didn't do a whole lot on the defensive line uh, last year. And last year, it looked like it was going to pay off. He started pretty strong. He had that two-sack game against the Saints, but a concussion basically ruined his season, among other injuries. Still, he ended up with another two-sack game late in the year. Two two two-sack games is nothing to sneeze at. The unfortunate thing is that's all he had. So we need him to bring that kind of production on a week-in, week-out basis. Not saying he's got to get two sacks every week, but he's got to be playing like a guy who's capable of getting two sacks every week. So he's got to be in the lineup, again, staying healthy and contributing consistently. Dean Lowry, kind of the same sort of sort of deal. He is the last guy among the defensive linemen for whom I have high expectations. And this is a different sort than both Kiki and Clark. Kenny Clark has high expectations because he's one of the best defensive linemen in the league. Kingsley Kiki is uh, facing higher expectations because the Packers have put a lot on him the last couple of years, just not improving a lot outside of adding him to the roster and, and just counting on him to improve. Dean Lowry is paid like a guy who should contribute more than just a fairly average contributor. But that's basically what he's been, often a below-average contributor, since he signed his contract extension. Now, a restructure bumps his money down a little bit this year, but a lot like Kingsley Kiki, we're going to just be asking for more consistent input from Dean Lowry in 2021. Now, to the bottom half of the defensive line group. This is, I think, where it gets a little bit more interesting here for a couple guys, and then we've kind of got a couple flyers beyond that. TJ Slayton, what do we make of him? I think you're pretty middle of the road on TJ Slayton. I am, at least. Moderate expectations for the rookie for two reasons. First, he is a rookie, and it does take some seasoning, does take some time to develop as a defensive lineman in the National Football League. That is just a fact. Most guys don't come in as defensive lineman and dominate from day one, unless you're just some kind of freak athlete, which does happen from time to time. And I know we've all seen the, the video of TJ Slayton dunking a basketball. And if you haven't, you should look it up. Just look up TJ Slayton dunk and it will be delivered to you immediately. But um, when I say overpowering athletes, that's not exactly what I mean. He, among defensive linemen, is, not, is a good athlete, just not like a great one. So moderate expectations for, the, for that reason. He's a rookie. He's going to need some time to develop and figure out how to play at the NFL level. Secondly, just the role that he's going to be playing. I think it's probably a fairly small role this year. He's probably going to be 2020 Tyler Lancaster plus. So primarily a run stuffer, primarily probably a base end or a guy who's going to bump Kenny Clark out to end and, and just hold up at the nose if they're running a true base three, four defense and run situations, that's probably going to be TJ Slayton. Tyler Lancaster, plus a little bit of pass rushing juice. But really, you're, you're just looking for him to develop this year. So what does that look like? What, what will we deem a successful season for him? Basically, I would say just don't be a liability in whatever re- role they put you in. They want you to hold up on the nose for 10 snaps a game, do it, and don't get pushed off the spot. You want to rush the passer a couple times a game, okay, give us a little push, give us more than Montrevious Adams gave the Packers, trying to push the pocket a little bit. 
a couple plays above and beyond that role is a wildly successful season, but really it's going to be a role player type season for him. He just has to play the role pretty well. Flipping over to Tyler Lancaster then, where do we put his expectations for this year? Well, he kind of is headed in the opposite direction, I think, of TJ Slayton, and as a result has pretty low expectations. He's got a role. He's got a small role, as we've talked about, kind of by way of Slayton himself. But last year, I feel like Tyler Lancaster filled that role pretty inconsistently. There were times that he played quite well down the stretch. Against the Titans, Tyler Lancaster was a part of that effort to keep Derrick Henry largely contained. He played pretty stout up front in that game, but you could just as easily find games where he got pushed around, which shouldn't happen to a guy with the physical gifts that he has. He's a good testing athlete. He's strong. He's got long arms. He should be better at the point of attack than he was last year. I think his role is probably going to be very similar this year. So in terms of meeting expectations, He's got to just do the same thing that he did last year, fill that role, but do it better, do it more consistently. Willington Prevalon is a bit of an interesting case. He hung around all of last season after joining the practice squad as an undrafted, or joining the roster rather, as an undrafted free agent. He was on the practice squad and was elevated a couple times, but never got any serious burn on game day. In fact, no game day activity at all. So expectations are accordingly pretty low. He is not going to, I think, really have many more opportunities than that this season. Probably not going to get, you know, consistent play in the lineup, given what's ahead of him on the depth chart. But I think as far as what we look for from him this year, just make it competitive with TJ Slayton. Even if you know you're probably getting pushed out, be competitive with the guys ahead of you on the depth chart. He's going to probably be playing a pretty similar role to what the Packers are looking for from TJ Slayton. He's just got to make it a competition that isn't a, a foregone conclusion, even though it may actually have you know, been concluded already with Slayton getting drafted and Prevalon having really just an undrafted free agent pedigree. Jack Heflin, one of our two remaining defensive linemen to discuss here. I think pretty low expectations here for an undrafted free agent with a lot of bodies on the depth chart ahead of him. Small school guy, though effective at those small schools. What then do we need from him? To show you belong, that's about it. There are going to be guys that show up in training camp this year and look like they don't belong on an NFL field. Just don't be that guy. Uh, you'll get another shot, whether that's with the Packers and the practice squad, with another team. Look like you belong and good things will come your way. Finally, Delonte Scott. I'm interested in this guy and I don't really know what to what to say we want from him. I think automatically your expectations have to be pretty low because of what he is. He's kind of a weird unicorn on the Packers roster. Scott is six foot five, two 246 pounds, but the Packers list him as a defensive lineman, not a linebacker. He's not an edge rush kind of guy, which is weird because his physical profile and all of his college tape at Southern Methodist University just screams edge rusher. He looks like he should be a big either stand-up edge rush guy or a guy like Zedaria Smith who can move around a little bit, but Zedarius is an edge. Why isn't Delonte Scott listed as a linebacker? We've never really gotten an explanation on, on why the Packers are doing what they're doing with Delonte Scott. So what do we want from him? I don't really know. I don't know what I want from him, what we should even want from him, what we can want from him, because I don't really know what he is. And I think that's a lot of fun. How many guys can we honestly say that about on the Packers roster at a given moment in a given year? What, what are these guys? Sometimes you just don't know. Delonte Scott is one of those guys, and it'll be interesting to figure that out 
this year. Now, edge rusher, much the same as last year. In fact, only one new face in this edge rushing group. I've got Carlo Kemp as that lone new addition. So your your other five guys are familiar faces, and that's a little concerning to me. You could throw a couple guys into that edge rusher group. I'm not really sure what Tipa Galliai is, as just as an example. The Packers seem to use him as an off-the-ball linebacker, but he could fit that edge sort of profile, though he, too, is very light, uh, like Delonte Scott. But really, this is the same group as last year. So what do we expect from this group as a whole? Again, I'm not really sure. Certainly better than last year, but probably not quite as good as 2019, because that seems to have been almost the outlier season for both of the Smiths, based on what we've seen so far. So it's a little bit of a mystery what this group is capable of as a whole, especially you know, we haven't really talked about it either position group when it comes to Joe Barry's defense. What are the edge rushers going to be doing? Again, we don't really know. In theory, it'll be fairly similar to what Mike Pettin does, but there are going to be some changes too. Who really knows? We don't know, and it's going to be a while before we figure it out. But undoubtedly, the highest expectations in this position group go to Zedaria Smith. He is a top edge rusher. He plays like it. I don't know what else you want other than expecting him to continue to play like that on a year-in, year-out basis. So practically speaking, that looks probably like a double-digit sack season again. But I think we're looking for more consistency from Zedarius too. His numbers were not as good in 2020 as 2019 by a fairly significant margin. His pressure rate, according to Sports Information Solutions, fell from 16% or thereabouts in 2019 down to about 10% in 2020. He was getting pressure on 16% of his rushes, almost 1 in 5, a little bit more than 1 in 6, and a drop to 1 in 10 in 2020. Total pressures were way down, too. He had 105 of them throughout the entire 2019 season, according to Pro Football Focus. But in 2020, that dropped to just 59 total pressures. Some of that is Zedarius Smith's fault. He just didn't perform the same way as he did in 2019. But Some of that also circles back to the symbiotic stuff that we talked about earlier. With worse edge performances around him, his stats weren't as good. That is not his fault. If he's out there going as hard as he can and doesn't get as many opportunities because because other guys aren't pulling their weight, you can hardly fault Zedaria Smith for that. On top of that, he played inside, I think, a little bit more than he did in 2019 to his detriment in some ways. He got beat up, I think, a lot early in the season and just didn't have as many opportunities to rush the passer because he was serving essentially that Kenny Clark role in the middle of the Packers' defensive line. That's a problem if you're the only guy who's really making any moves of the middle. Everybody can focus on you, and I think he got swallowed up a lot just by a sheer numbers game. That shouldn't happen if things go well in 2021, especially if he gets some help from other edge rushers, like, for instance, Rashawn Gary. High expectations for Rashawn Gary this year. This is put-it-all-together time. In 2019, we saw some flashes. In 2020, he was a more complete and consistent player. Now it's time to go from complete and consistent to legitimate worry for opposing offenses. This is now the time to be the 12th overall pick. You've had plenty of time, plenty of seasoning. Let's make some real plays here, Rashawn Gary. So what does that look like? Continued improvement in his pressure rate and total pressures, and some counting stats wouldn't go amiss here too. High expectations, but a pretty simple outcome for us to measure here. Did he do it or didn't he do it? The only thing that can really complicate that picture is is injuries. 
What about Preston Smith then? I've got him listed as our third edge rusher here, and I think that's fair. Still, high expectations for him because the Packers clearly wanted to keep him around. They seemed to like him, and they allowed him to move his contract around a little bit to uh, stick with the roster. He wants to be here and has played well with the Packers. So what do we expect from Preston Smith in 2021? I think his performance has to be somewhere between 2019 and 2020. I think at this point, looking at the two seasons he's played with the Packers, it seems like 2020 is less an outlier than 2019. The really, really good season he had in 2019 seems to be the exception more than 2020. But also, in the same token, 2020 just can't happen again. He can't have a season where he shows up out of shape and basically has to take three quarters of the season to get ready to go. He's got to show up and be in shape and ready to go from the get-go. And we'll see in a couple of weeks if that happens. Now, beyond those top three guys, we've got three guys with low expectations here. So a little bit of a top-heavy position group here, but I think that's that's understandable given what the Packers have done, making moves there or maybe not making moves there since Zedarius and Preston came on board and Rashawn Gary was drafted in 2019. I think it's fair to uh, to not dump a whole lot of resources into the edge rushing group beyond those guys, but still... There's been very little else done there, and there's very little else to show for it on the roster, which brings us to Jonathan Garvin. Garvin, a seventh-round pick in 2020, I think has pretty low expectations again this year. Somebody's got to be the fourth edge, though, and it might as well be him. What does that look like then? Give us something, anything as an edge rusher. You can't just be a special teamer if you're going to be number four on the depth chart here. Same goes for Randy Ramsey, another basically version of Jonathan Garvin. Low expectations, but again, somebody's got to be the fourth edge. It might as well be him. So give us something, anything as an edge rusher. Don't just be a special teamer. Rounding out the position group is Carlo Kemp. Defensive lineman moving to edge in the NFL has got to have low expectations. And basically, this is a lot like Jack Helflin on the defensive line. Just look like you belong out there. Don't look completely lost. Don't embarrass yourself. You'll get more opportunities in Green Bay or somewhere else. Still, got to temper those expectations considerably given the position move that he is making. All right. In just a second here, we're going to talk about blood, sweat, and chalk. But first, I want to give a shout out to three Patreon supporters, Josh Dunn, James Arkid, and Mark. Mark is the only name that he gave us, but I am appreciative of Josh, James, and Mark, whether they want to give full names or not, we appreciate their Patreon support. And you can be a Patreon supporter as well by heading to patreon.com slash thepowersweep. When you do so, you'll get access to some bonus content as well as access to our Discord server where you can go a little bit deeper on discussion about uh, our, our book here and whatever else might be on your mind as a Packers fan. It's a great place to hang out with your fellow Packers fans from all around the world. So I'd encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash thepowersweep Become a patron at whatever level you choose and join us there uh, for some more Packers talk. Book talk, though, brings us to chapter nine of Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, in which we will discuss the power sweep. As you might imagine, I have some thoughts about this power sweep, and I think there's a lot that you can say about this play that doesn't really have to do with the play itself. But this, this quote really jumped out to me from the chapter. Quote, it was this single play that would represent the cool efficiency that made Lombardi's Packers great, and it was these charismatic Packers that gave the NFL a foundation on which to build its future, offering a 50s simplicity 
and sociability as comfortable as a suburban backyard cookout. For opposing defenders, though, the power sweep wasn't comfortable at all. The apparent simplicity was instead almost maddening. Yet the power sweep had its own sweet complexity, perfected only through endless repetition. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Let's talk about Matt LaFleur and his illusion of complexity idea, just for a second. So the idea in Matt LaFleur's offense is that every play has to look complicated, but in reality be very simple, easy to execute, easy to plug guys in and help them maximize their skills. That's been fairly effective here now for two years in Green Bay. The same sort of idea, I think, applies to the power sweep. The illusion of complexity is still there. It is simple, but it is complex, much like Matt LaFleur's offense. It's simple, but it is complex. And the power sweep is is that, simple but complex at the same time. At the same time, it's complex, but very simple. At the end of the day, everybody has a key block, Everybody has a job to do, as Ron Kramer put it in this chapter. It's a simple play. It relies on execution. It relies on knowing what you're good at and doing it well and doing it repeatedly and doing it simply and doing it in a way that's going to put your team in position to succeed. That, to me, is football in a nutshell. And it helps that I'm a Packers fan and that you're a Packers fan and that we like everything to do with the Packers, but... This is so emblematic of what football is supposed to be. Yes, you can have complicated schemes and plays and do all the wacky stuff that can win you games. But ultimately, what does it come down to? Doing the little things well, executing at a high level, knowing what your role is, knowing what your job is, and doing that job as well as you can. That's where you start to get into this idea of, you know, football being a metaphor for life or football teaching you things about life. If those are the lessons that you're learning from football, football has done you a great service. Doing the things that you're supposed to do, doing them while playing to your strength within the overall structure of a team or a business or a family or a friendship, that is a great lesson to learn. And that, I think, is what the power sweep teaches us. Take, for instance, another power sweep. The entire power sweep project has been built around, and I'm I'm talking about the website that I run, this podcast that I do, dating back to the times when when Gary was helping us out with it, uh, is all about doing what we do well. Packers analysis that's pretty simple and straightforward but it's process-oriented, it's built around doing what we do and do well, and that resonates with people because it enables you to have a system to deliver consistent results. That's what this play is all about, too. On top of that, in this play, you get the ability to set up other plays. That's something that came up repeatedly in this chapter. Not only did the Packers succeed with the power sweep, they succeeded with variations of the power sweep. They succeeded with the the off-tackle play. They succeeded with the, the straight fullback dive that Jim Toy- Taylor would just go blasting up the middle. That, too, sounds very familiar in modern football. What does Matt LaFleur say all the time about his offense? Every play starts looking out the same, starts out looking the same. 
That's how you build one play on top of another on top of another. If you can build a system that relies on execution and simplicity and everybody doing their job, that's the sort of thing that you can build. Continuing on to just some some observations from this chapter as a whole, Lombardi says in this chapter that he was inspired by single-wing teams, and since we've covered the single-wing offense in this book, we can we can talk about that. And you can really see how the power sweep was inspired by the single-wing offense. Looking back to that that early chapter about the single-wing, a lot of it was just a long-developing sweep play going around one end of the line or another. Sure, you may have some backfield motion going on with that, some fancy handoffs or fake handoffs and things like that, but it just kind of boils down to getting a lot of muscle going in one direction and letting a ball carrier run behind it. That is the essence of the sweep, too. You've got a complicated block uh, from Ron Kramer, the end, but ultimately it's about setting up an opportunity for Jerry Kramer and Fuzzy Thurston to get out in front of the pack and let let Paul Horning pick his way behind them, run to daylight, as it were. Just get a lot of muscle going in one direction. And it became famous because of how well the Packers executed it, but Vince Lombardi was also very, very realistic about what this play was. This isn't your secret weapon. This isn't the 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 play that you're going to, you know, uncork a 50-yard bomb or just do something that the, the other team has never seen before. This is, to use his line, a yard gainer. This is a consistent, reliable play that's going to get you seven, eight yards, keep you ahead of the sticks, and allow you to keep doing other things that are ultimately going to get you in the end zone. That's another lesson that I think people forget in football and maybe in life too, although I don't know the one-to-one comparison there as much as with the other stuff. But yeah, it's cool to you know have the big chunk plays and things like that, but you do have to gain yards. So what can you do well and do consistently? Figuring that out, executing that at a high level consistently is going to win you football games. If you can consistently gain yards doing something that you do well, the rest is going to kind of take care of itself. That's what Vince Lombardi was going for. It kind of boils down, I think, to um, this line that really stuck with me, and I'm probably going to uh, uh, you know, copy it down and apply it to other situations outside of this. Uh, but quoting roughly from um, David Moranis' book, When Pride Still Mattered, uh, Layden talks about how Lombardi learned the philosophy from Red Blake at Army of discarding the immaterial and refining those few things that one did best. What a great quote. And what a, a lesson for football teams and, again, for life as a whole. What are the immaterial things? What are the things that are distractions that you shouldn't be worrying about? Get rid of those. Then refine the few things that you do really well. Lean on those hard, and I think success is probably going to follow. Vince Lombardi knew what he did well. And if you read books like Run to Daylight and When Pride Still Mattered, you'll see that he is also very aware of things that he does not do well. One thing that came up again and again and again, I think in Pride Still Mattered, but maybe Run to Daylight too, uh, or maybe it's just a story that I picked up elsewhere, that was that Vince Lombardi knew that he was hard to be around during games because he was all about preparation and preparing to execute well. And once the game was underway, it's about responding. And he was constantly worried that he was not very good at responding because he was so worried about the preparation and, and making sure that his guys were ready before the game started 
that it got hard for him to respond to things during the game. So he just ended up just kind of being a basket case on the sideline, not always sure of what he needed to be doing at a given moment. But he was able to set that side and really lean on what he did well. So if he knew that he wasn't going to be good at responding to things during the games, how does he counteract that? Well, he he leans really hard on preparing the Packers to be really good prior to the start of the game, drilling those plays consistently, making sure that they can reel off those seven, eight yards that they need to be getting with the power sweep, then filling in those other plays that build off of that, and you've got something to fall back on. Discard the immaterial and refine those few things that one does best. Usually talk about Packers connections here at the end, but uh, this was all about the Packers, really, so we're going to skip Packers connections. There is one other notable connection that does get a mention here. Howard Mudd gets mentioned at the tail end of this chapter. Interesting that he's basically praising the power sweep and its blocking in the quote that Layden chose, uh, because Howard Mudd um, ended up being probably the consummate offensive line coach, maybe other than Dante Scarnecchia in New England. He is the guy. He was an offensive line coach in college in the 1972-73 season. Then in the pros from 1974, basically through 2012, had a couple years off in there and then came back again in 2019. An offensive line coach lifer inspired back in the 60s by playing against Vince Lombardi as an offensive lineman. Just seeing what the Packers did as an offensive lineman himself, helped inspire one of the great offensive line coaches ever uh, in what would become a very long and uh, successful career, as he did win a Super Bowl uh, with the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, Just kind of a cool little nugget there. So I've got for you in this episode. Appreciate you tuning in for a discussion about the defensive line, uh, the Packers edge rushers, and, of course, about the power sweep. If you enjoyed the show and think somebody else would enjoy it as well, I would encourage you to share it with that person because that's the best way that we found to uh, grow the show. It gets more people involved and ultimately helps all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. More people working together, knowing their roles, I guess, as a part of a team is what's going to accomplish that. And that's a great thing because, as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.